Greetings from Video Volunteers in Goa. In a wooden house or wooden stone, I can see palm trees and other kinds of trees and hear birds. And as always, the sound of fans, because fans will keep you cool on these warm, warm Goa days. In just a moment, we'll be speaking with Jesse from Video Volunteers. Now, who are Video Volunteers? Well, you're about to find out. Let's go. I'm Jessica Mayberry, and I'm the founder of an organization called Video Volunteers. I've been living in India for about 10 years now. I start, my background is in broadcast journalism. I started off as a associate producer at places like CNN and the Fox News Channel and got completely disillusioned with that and came to India uh, to start training women to tell their stories using video. Right now, our organization, Video Volunteers, is a really vibrant alternative media network for uh, communities in India, for marginalized communities, for people whose issues are totally left out of the media and even the policy discussions. The main way that we operate, you could sort of imagine it like a kind of a grassroots Reuters, but the purpose is not just to tell stories, but to tell stories that lead to action. So we train communities, um, we identify individuals, and we offer them this opportunity to be trained during a two-week-long period to become community correspondents. We give them very basic flip cams or inexpensive tablet computers, teach them how to use it. Um, and they produce these short reports on issues of entitlements, um, of, of government programs that are not working, of corruption, gender, maternal health, education, all kinds of issues that affect them and that don't come in the media. But it's not just about making the stories because, heck, you know, all these people already know what their issues are. It's about using it to solve the problems. So about 20 to 25 percent of the videos that we produce manages to solve the problem when they take them to government officials and and basically say, look, this is what's going on. So there's a so sometimes the media is like a, it's a real carrot and stick thing going on. Sometimes local government officials love this because it's a way to you know for them to focus their attention and see what are the issues that people want to be focused on. Other times it's just flat out exposing corruption and wrongdoing. Um, but you know we 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 think it's really important that media. Uh, in these kinds of, in, you know, in communities that are really angry about their rights being taken away, that it's really important that media be action-oriented and solutions-oriented, and that it also that it celebrates the kinds of struggles that people are going that that that, that people are going through. Um, we see we see our, our correspondents themselves all come from, and they all live below the poverty line. They all represent some of the poorest communities in the country, you know, most disadvantaged communities. The network is 40% Adivasi, which is a tribal people, 30% um, Dalit, it's always 50% women. 
people who are sort of traditionally viewed as kind of downtrodden, but my God, are they inspiring and um, are they kind of out there as the front lines of, of democracy? How do you reach, because I've heard a lot in my, at least in this initial stage of my travels here in India, about the, of course, about the groups, right? Um, and also the how some groups are more isolated. And you've just said these are groups that are rarely heard from in society. Uh, how to reach such groups? Because you've already said, you know, they're, they're involved, they're engaged, but I'm wondering how that happened. Uh, especially as I think there would be a lot of resistance uh, to, to someone saying, you know, what you need to do is make media. Well, there's definitely big divides in India, and, 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 and often it seems really sad to be, you know, when you meet people who don't know their country, whose, whose experience of poverty or the other is sort of looking down on them in a slum in Bombay or driving past them. And, and it doesn't have to be like that. In fact, they're not, you know, it's not that hard to access um, the real, the you know, the real India, as I sometimes call it, which is not necessarily the right way to describe it, because everything is real. But you know, to access the real India is not that hard. One, we we do it primarily through social movements. You know, this whole country, not necessarily NGOs, but social movements. These are these massive groups of you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of individuals that are standing up against whatever kind of. Um, big development projects are going on. So working, and whose stories are not told. Hundreds of millions of people in India are associated with social movements, but yet they're invisible. Um, or they're invisible until there are, you know, there are few that are really famous, or they're invisible until there's some kind of a struggle. So, but um, that's one way to reach communities that we want to train. Um, uh, and maybe you also were sort of asking about the technological issues of, of reaching them, because yes, there's still, you know, really limited internet penetration in these areas. We are always, always, you know, trying our best to get all of our correspondence online um, right now, but it's, the progress is sort of way, way, way too slow. Like right now they're out of our 200 correspondents, about 80 of them are in our WhatsApp group. Um, and those are those include ones who we have, you know, sort of who were who are not there naturally, who we've sort of, you know, given the tablets to and said, look, this is the internet, try it out. You know, it's really interesting. I know you don't know what it is, but just you know, give it a try and figure out the next big town that you can go to to connect. So connectivity is is a really big issue. In terms of the distribution of our content, the correspondence, the first line of, line of distribution is simply back to the communities. So they produce the stories, they snail mail it to our office where the footage is edited, then they get the footage back to their villages. Sometimes that can happen over the internet. They can download the video mm -hmm. for some of them. Others will get on a bus and take the overnight bus to the capital city where our office is in the eight states where we have state offices and then get get their videos, take them back to their villages, put them onto their phones, show them to government officials, put them onto CDs, leave them in the local internet, like leave them in the in the in the shops where people 
load up their phones with music and films. You know, that's a place that we can use to get the stories out. There's a little bit of Bluetooth sharing going on. Um, so that's that's one of the ways that they do the screenings is on small screens, and they're big screens. We have a network of projectors that are out there doing screenings. You know, in the villages, like correspondents can say, you know, I want to organize a big screening, and they'll. Um, and they can do that. We have programs on Doordarshan, which is the national broadcaster here in, a, in five states. Um, so, and those are really cool programs. They're now produced totally by the correspondents themselves, scripting, anchoring, choosing the issues, and they go out on the state broadcaster. Um, so that's one way. And then, then we do, you know, and that's how we reach communities. And then online, of course, everything is on YouTube, and we put out... You know, and on Facebook, I mean, the better content. We do a lot of sort of uh, of sifting of the content because we produce about 120 videos a month. And a lot of that is only good, you know, is, is, is of relevance for local impact campaigns and changing things in the communities. But we think that, it, you know, the top 25%, I would say roughly, of that is probably 30, 40 videos a month that we think are really good and, you know, that we would want to watch. The people like us would be, in, you know, the issues are interesting. Um, they're well told. They're shocking. They show you another side of India than you would usually see. You know, stories are thoughtfully told. And with those, we, we, they, we, they go on CNN, IBN, um, is the is the Indian CNN affiliate who takes some of our content, and then various of the kind of online news platforms in India. And then we've had shows on different channels at different times. So it's challenging. It's definitely progressing. Like Indian online news is getting much more dynamic, and that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, the newspapers are are sort of you know are hard for alternative groups like us to break into, but. The alternatives, the, 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 the online space is getting full of really, really intelligent media. Like, like a lot of people who were into video blogging, or some of us called it video blogging uh, 10 years ago, uh, we were very excited about video volunteers. And uh, at that time, this program called India Unheard. Anyway, this is all for veterans who remember. Um, but it, I wonder, in the years that have passed, it must have become a very crowded place uh, between both for-profit, non-profit, and everything in between. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of people uh, making video reports in this country now. Um, do, you, do you feel yourself or do you feel the organization more of an, a news agency of sorts or am I thinking about it the wrong way? It, I mean, it, it's definitely an interesting question. Like how has the proliferation of, of, of platforms kind of you know, changed things for us? Or yeah. it, um, in some ways, What's depressing about it is that, yes, there are a lot more platforms and um, there are a lot more people thinking of new ways to make businesses and make a living doing this. But the but the profile of who produced has not changed. So we wish there were a lot more people who were thinking like we do that, you know, who produces the news is as important as what the news is. But unfortunately, you know, there are very, very few people thinking about that. So as a result, Two percent of content on in the Indian mainstream media on any given day relates to to rural areas where seventy percent of the population lives. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still an incredibly the the senior executives. I mean, it's still incredibly you know glass ceiling kind of industry. Um, so 
the need for the need for alternative voices has only gone up, which which is the case anywhere in the world, right? As we become more, you know, as we be, as the world becomes more polarized and more divided. Um, Yes, we need to listen to each other more, but we also have to, we have to figure out, people have to figure out a way how to assert their right to be heard. You know, whether they're, whether they're an American Trump voter, I mean, somehow they should have been able to force me to listen to them. In the same way, I would like our rural communities to be able to say, you know, hey, you have to listen to me. Mm-hmm. Somebody, somebody, it's come down to a point somehow of compulsion because, because everything else is moving towards our listening in our own little silos. <laughs> Tell us a story from among the stories, uh, perhaps a case where a report on an issue, and I'm curious to know what that issue was, uh, that went far, that made an impact, that changed uh, some lives or maybe some policies. Yeah, there are a lot of people I admire massively from amongst our network of correspondents, but there are a couple I'll tell you about in particular. One is a woman named Rohini who is a um, who is a you know farm comes from a farming area in 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 Pune district in Maharashtra. Um, and she's been a correspondent for about six years, and she's she's produced some incredibly powerful results. She's uh, reports. One of the ones was about from a few years ago, which was about women in her village, farming women who were not getting the same wages as the men, and. Um, through her video, she managed to get them, you know, she, she made the video, she showed it to them, she got the women to go on strike, and all of a sudden, you know, they're getting, for taking in the onion harvest, they're getting the same wage as the men. And that has, that has sustained itself, you know, four years later, the situation is still the same. And so she, she came to the training with her husband, you know, not being allowed to come on her own, where her husband had said, oh, they're going on a pilgrimage, but in fact she was coming for this training, which her husband wasn't too supportive about, but, like, he's not, he's kind of a lazy guy, and he was happy to know that, you know, maybe she'll get a job out of this and earn some money, so he brought her very skeptically. Um, now she's she stopped dozens of child marriages in her area. One of her big issues is is child marriage. Um, sometimes with the video or sometimes just through the leadership that she has developed through having the video. Uh, she, she's, done, she's done lots of great things, forced herself, gotten temples to start allowing women in and really challenging stuff and always standing up to, to um, challenge patriarchy. And that's one of the campaigns that we have running is this campaign called Dismantle Patriarchy that, where our correspondents have been producing videos that are attempting to get at the the root cause of all of the violence that we've been seeing all these years in our videos. We have tons of videos about acid attacks and domestic violence and rape. And of course, we started doing a lot of 
reporting on rape more after the Delhi, after the Delhi riots to try to explore that. And when we explored it, we're like, we're coming up cold. What, you know, where is this all going? And, and everybody feeling incredibly heavy and depressed by all of this content that was coming in, but saying, hey, you know, we've got it. We've got to get at the root cause here, which is patriarchy and how we talk about gender. And I think, frankly, that is as relevant wherever we are in the world. It's relevant today in the United States. Um, if we'd been having a different conversation about gender for the last couple of years, Hillary might have won the election. I think she probably would have won the election. And so we have to keep changing the conversation about gender. Um, we're trying to do it by, uh, by, by highlighting all the things that, you know, that rural Indian women talk about and know about gender discrimination that the rest of us, that the, the middle class people don't really acknowledge. Um, in general, this is, I, you know, of course, this won't be the experience for every woman, but my personal experience in my life is that I see that the rural women that we work with talk about gender in a much more forthright, explicit, kind of, you know, take off the blinkers kind of way than my middle class friends do. Um, and I think that's because they're, because, you know, these rural women are really still like in the heart of the struggle. So they're kind of like my mother's generation, you know, women of the 60s, um, where they were, the 50s, and women who still really remember what, what a, who could tangibly see, you didn't have to force yourself to think about gender, to understand it. It was there every day um, facing you. So I want, you know, so one of the reasons we're teaching our correspondent, you know, we're getting our correspondents to report on, on gender and patriarchy is because we think they're lessons that the rest of the world can learn from the way that rural women talk about gender. And Rohini is one of the people who does that really well. Volunteers is a nonprofit, and our funding comes from grants and donations, and we have a little bit of earned income. As time goes on, we hope that we can make this function in a more as a more sustainable media business that we will be able to find develop a market for our content um, because you know we see that we have what is about the most cost effective way of getting content out of rural areas, video content out of rural areas. The challenge with discovering, you know, making a business model work here is that is that um, uh, is that the mainstream media in India is like increasingly just looking at urban content. Mm -hmm. um, nobody, nobody is interested. You know, nobody wants to sell products to these sort of so-called poor people. Um, so it's hard to get the media, you know, to pay for this kind of content. Technology has been changing, and uh, you're still producing videos in this changing context. How's it been and, and how are you handling that? And then there are other elements about this technology and who can get access to it that I hope you can also speak to. Technology has totally shaped what, what the available technology is at a certain time has totally shaped the kind of model that we developed for training people. And in particular, like the team size and who could train and who could hold the camera was dictated by how many cameras we could afford to buy. 
know, in the very in the very beginning, we were using the first cameras that got us really excited were these things called Panasonic GS180s, and they were six hundred dollars, and they were available in like two thousand five and two thousand six. And they enabled us to say to organizations, hey, you can finally start a community video project because look, a camera, a really good camera is only $600 and they could afford that. They, we used those cameras and, and we also thought that the correct ratio at that cost was like one person, one camera for say three or four people. So that was the kind of model we set up these units. We called them community video units. And the idea was, you know, two or three cameras and nine people all in one room. They would produce these half hour video magazines and road show them with projectors in their villages. Then those cameras were stopped. The, the, the camera companies stopped manufacturing that line of, of professional, inexpensive $600 cameras. All the companies stopped in one year uh, because they were what I heard. They were seeing that news organizations were using in, in countries like India were using these cameras. They were so good that they were not buying the $20,000 cameras anymore. And, th and those don't exist. You cannot buy today a decent Handycam for six hundred dollars. So that was a big lull for us, and it took us a while to recover. And then we slowed down because of that, because we could not afford the cameras all of a sudden. Then the flip cameras came along, and when Flip shut down Cisco, they gave us eight hundred cameras. We started. We stopped. Half of them were 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 kaput and didn't even turn on. Um, but we used we used about four. Took us about two years to get through four hundred of them, um, and those again were fantastic. Uh, they are still as good as what's in an iPhone, or maybe like not as good as the iPhone seven, but you know pretty darn close to what's as good as an iPhone, and they only cost a hundred dollars. Cisco shut those down again. Another way, a very you know Western way of looking at the market by saying, oh. Who knew, who's going to spend $100 buying a, just a camera when a phone is so cheap? Well, a $500 iPhone is not so cheap over here. So we scour the internet every month to buy every set of, of, of flip cams that we can find in batches of 10 and 20 from like obscure tech websites in Texas. <laughs> still today, still today, we're using the flip cams because they have the best like flip cams not connected to the internet because they have the best camera and audio um uh, and we've started using tablets. We use a lot of Nexus tablets. I don't know exactly which ones they are. They can be around like, they can be sort of 100 to $200. Um, but they're not, the video quality, they don't last as long. The video quality is not as good. The audio is not as good. They melt, they get hot, the batteries don't work. So right now in terms of camera, you know, the flip is the best thing for us. Of course, we would love for somebody like Samsung or or Apple or something to be able to give us cameras and as and 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 but that's not happening. Those are not the companies that want to give their stuff away. All the companies that want to do CSR are all the nasty ones, not the good ones. Um, so so yeah, it's very interesting to see how technology changes things. I hope that you know. I mean, I'm clearly this, the the light is on the horizon because these tablet type things are just going to get better, and internet you know will come. As I walk in the building, I see uh, people having small meetings. Uh, they seem to be 
relevant to whatever work is going on here. I also see people behind, of course, computers. I'm not sure if I didn't see people editing. Tell me a little bit about uh, the different tasks that exist here. You've already told us about how the people who do the actual creation of content, the different ways they get it to you and how you get it back out. But I'm curious, uh, the processing. We have, so in, in Video Volunteers is about 50, uh, 250 people, a uh, little over 200 correspondents, and then about 35 staff. Uh, most of that staff is here in Goa. We also have eight or nine small state offices around the country. Um, where, because basically we're structured, it's sort of the, the network is structured like like eight state hubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so in each of these small state offices, there's a video editor and a state coordinator, who in most cases is a senior community correspondent. And the correspondents are dispersed. So, so a state on average has about 20 correspondents. And then this, these two, this editor and state coordinator. And the correspondents represent, there's, there's rarely more than one correspondent per district. So we've set it up like a, a modeled on the way that a news organization or a news network might do this, where you need to have people who are sort of, who are far away from each other, far enough away that they're covering, you know, that, that they, you can get a broad spread of coverage, yet you need to, we have found that it works really well for us to also have a state unit because they can produce the content, you know, that is for, in their particular district, but the advocacy with the state government, the kind of finding of themes, the bigger change can all happen at the state level. So we have these eight state offices. And then here in Goa, uh, we have different people working on different things. There's a training and mentoring team um, that designs the training material and works and then and then um, rolls out, sometimes over WhatsApp, sometimes via the courier, different story ideas of things that we're seeing here. They field calls from the correspondents when they're facing issues with their stories. There's a recruitment team or a recruitment manager, rather, which is Radhika. The recruitment manager is in charge of, of building the relationships with the social movements and then recruiting the correspondents. So it's kind of her job when we are because we really do view ourselves as a voice of these different of these different social movements through whom we found the correspondence. So she'll be talking to them and saying, you know, what what sorts of stories do you need? What's going on? And then pass that on to the correspondent or sort of be in there and planning interesting stories. And, you know, through that, we've amassed really, really interesting set of content that relates to India's social movements and particularly to forced evictions and dam projects and things like that. You know, there are about 80 sites of forced evictions that we've documented over the last few years, which is one of the hardest issues to get into the media, if not the hardest, because it's an issue the media is actively against showing. Yeah, they don't just ignore it, but they take the other side. India has the highest number of internally displaced people in the world. About a million people a year lose their homes because of development projects, because of mining, airports, hotels, factories, all of those kinds of issues. So um, that has been... We, we, that has been a big focus of our reporting, which just came about by virtue of the fact that saying we wanted diversity in our network, which meant we wanted to work with Adivasis. And you go into central, central India, you know, the beautiful heartland of this country, 
gorgeous mountains, you know, incredible rivers and streams, and, you know, in some places quite vibrant indigenous culture, and, and all being decimated by mining. Um, so we saw that, you know, this was so many of the people that we were recruiting as correspondents were personally affected, you know, had been displaced at some point or had family members who had been. So that became a big focus of our reporting. So it, so one person looks at recruitment. There's a training and mentoring team. There's an advocacy team, an impacts team. Um, the impacts, there's the impacts, one person, you know, some people who look at impacts look at the micro impacts, helping the correspondents to achieve this target that we keep setting of saying we want, you know, between 20 and 25% of all of our videos should get an impact. Um, you know, so it's been about more than a thousand times since we started in 2010 with this program that they've gotten an impact. So one person looks at that. Then there's other advocacy, kind of national level advocacy on these issues, I mean, on, on our campaign issues, which are gender, forced evictions, maternal health, education, um, and forced and untouchability. You know, these are the sort of systemic issues where one, you can't solve that problem in your village. You know, so you've got to solve it at a national level. So in those cases, we're networking with the kind of leading gender organizations in the, in the country and saying, hey, we can help you by, by bringing the voice of communities into your campaign. You know, there's uh, the advent of short video, which so many services now try to go after. There's discussions about the declining attention span. Uh, here in India, occasionally I get into conversations, sometimes not even of my own will, about podcasts and listening as opposed to watching. Obviously, the decision here was taken long ago uh, that we're going with video because it seems to me, and now here I need your help, and uh, this is going to be an ongoing conversation, we're talking about a place in the world where, perhaps with exceptions, but it seems like video is the way that people listen, that people learn, and, and, and audio as an example somehow is not there. But, but I'm still exploring this issue. Any comment on this? Audio is still really, really relevant and important for the communities that we, you know, that we work with. I mean, community radio is, is a very vibrant movement in India as well, um, which, which we, we are not doing any community radio training right now, but Stalin, my, my husband and partner in video volunteers, is you know, one of the, kind of been one of the leaders of the community radio movement, which was illegal. Community radio was illegal until 2007. So audio is totally not to be written off. I mean, it's still really relevant. We went with video because... Well, I personally went with video because I just, you know, it was so amazing to see that people who didn't know how to read and write could, could produce a video. It just floored me when I saw that. Now, that was where it started. Then, then, then you saw that, you know, video is now sort of such a popular, you know, such a big part of news these days and what people are consuming on the internet. Um, so it's a good thing, but of course it definitely has its challenges in India because for, for a very long time, and still, it's still a huge issue for us that many, many of the videos we produce 
our correspondents can't even see them because there's such a time delay because they don't have access to the internet to get the videos. You know, so like I was saying in the beginning, sometimes you know, our person will make a video report, it'll get edited in our office in the state capitol, and it may be a month before the video makes its way back to them. That's sad. You know, if you're working with print, that kind of thing is not there. That problem is not there. Um, but, I mean, in terms of technologies that I think are exciting here, like, you know, Face, I think what's, WhatsApp has been phenomenal for us. Like, we had, we have tried in the past to roll out e-groups, like mailing, you know, Google groups. That didn't work. We tried Facebook for our correspondence. That didn't work. Um, we, we've tried different voice messaging services. But WhatsApp, it, WhatsApp is really great um, for keeping them alive. You know, we get great anecdotes from the stories. They're, they're able to, to share and learn from each other with a little bit of moderation. A WhatsApp group can become a really effective way, you know, method of peer learning. So WhatsApp has been really interesting. And I think um, I also, I think Facebook Live hmm. is also a really, like is something I really want us to do this year because I think it's perfect for the kinds of communities that we work with who are, who are, you know, who are so passionate when you're in front of them and talking about it. But for whatever reason, our, you know, our people don't like to sit down and write. So if you ask them to like script a voiceover, it can come across as really dry and because that's not what they're not writers, but to talk to the world, you know, is what, mm. what they love to do. And I, and I'm excited to see how the immediacy of that will play out and and once that's really there it's like it's like you can no longer not listen to these communities anymore that last one of one of those last barriers will be broken because you will be able to hear people quickly and immediately once facebook live spreads the archives the videos that were 10 years ago five years ago uh i don't assume you've solved this question of of can they be found? Will they be seen? Where are they? Are they available? Are they accessible? Are they searchable? How do you handle, um, yeah, the, the, the old videos are the, as time goes on? We think of YouTube as the, as the ultimate, you know, as the ultimate kind of repository. And um, I think, so we, we make sure that all of our stuff, all of our content is organized into different playlists that we could sort of imagine being searchable. And of course, and people will say, oh, but look at that, you know, this video has 25 views or something, you know, over six years, you'd say, you know, that's okay. This is, this is sort of for posterity. This is for researchers. This is their place. This is their kind of, you know, handprint in the sand. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's our archive is, is a really important record of the changes that have happened in India over the last six years um, or 10 years, even our, in the program we were doing before India Unheard. So, um, so I'm, I mean, I'm, so I'm glad that YouTube is there as an archive. Well, Jesse, thank you very much for uh, taking the time today. Uh, best of luck with the work that you do. Yeah, thanks for all the great questions <laughs> and I being know. curious. And the essential links for people, which I'll also write in the, the post. But uh... Yeah, videovolunteers.org.
theme music for Citizen Reporter is by Nick Afflito. We had music on today's podcast by Poddington Bear, Zero V, and the trio of Vinad Prasanna, OK Soki, and Pompey, all published under CC licenses available on the Free Music Archive. This program is published under a CC BYSA 4.0 license. Special thanks to producers Chinmai and Yulia for all their help throughout the India journey. The journey does carry on here on the podcast, so stay subscribed. If you don't know what subscription is, look it up. Check, press the button on citizenreporter.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you really soon. See ya. Oh, and what was the other where we're going tonight is Asagao. Yeah. Yeah.